Hi, friends. My name is Meg. I like that you referred to my book as a little storybook. It's 40,000 words, but a little storybook. That's all right. It's okay. He hasn't seen it. It's fine. So, yeah, I'm a missionary. I live out of my car, drive around the country, fly around the world. I've been doing that for 10 years, 50 states, 25 countries, driven about 305,000 miles. Also, I could be here with y'all tonight, so kind of the pinnacle of my existence. It's no big deal. It's fine. Uh, I also have two degrees in theology from Notre Dame, um, so I would like to wish you well with your new football coach, and thank you for taking him off of our hands, because I am pretty excited about the Marcus Freeman era, so, uh, but I'm sure he'll do great. I'm sure he will be a perfect fit here. That'll be wonderful. Uh, I am excited to be here with y'all tonight. Um, and to see just what the Holy Spirit might have to say. So let's go ahead and begin with a prayer. And then I'll try and get out of the way. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Jesus, we ask you to send your Holy Spirit down upon us tonight. I pray, Lord God, that your will would be done in our hearts. I pray, Lord, that you would banish any spirit of Cynicism or self-loathing. Any spirit of condemnation or shame. Anything, Lord, that keeps us from belonging entirely to you. Spirit, I ask you to fill us instead with a certainty of your wild and unceasing love for us. Lord, I pray tonight that I would only speak truth and the truth that these hearts long to hear that by your goodness and through your mercy, Lord God, you would allow us to know what it is that you delight in us. And Mother Mary, we ask you to pray for us. That like you, we would draw near to the Lord, whatever the cost. We ask this through your intercession as we pray, Hail Mary. Full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. St. Mark G. Tianxiang, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. A couple of years ago, I was praying in a church in Adrian, Michigan. Uh, and it was one of those churches where they, like, stuck the, uh, the tabernacle somewhere weird. You know, you got to, like, look for it. And you go and you feel like Mary Magdalene. And you're like, they've taken my Lord. I don't know where they've laid him. And the people are like, what are you talking about? And you're like, okay, fine. So I found the tabernacle, right? A little bit of a scavenger hunt. But I found the tabernacle. And it was, like, situated behind the main altar. There's, like, a rare dose. And then there's a giant crucifix hanging above me. And I'm in this, like, tiny little Eucharistic chapel, like, at the foot of this enormous crucifix. And I'm, like, kind of all crowded in and, like, sitting on the floor with Jesus. And I was having, like, a day, you know? Like, I was just not feeling my whole life. Uh, and I was like, Jesus, I just, I can't. Like, I can't live the way that I'm living. I can't, like, I mean, it was probably a living in a car thing, you know? I mean, it's reasonable. Uh, but I was like, Jesus, I just feel like I just feel like I'm not going anywhere, you know, like I'm trying and I'm fighting and I'm searching and I'm seeking and I'm not going anywhere. So I'm sitting there 
next to the tabernacle at the foot of this giant crucifix, just saying over and over again in frustration, Lord, I'm not going anywhere. And after like the fourth or fifth time I said that, Jesus was like, can you listen? Can you listen to what you're saying? Because you're sitting here before the tabernacle at the foot of the cross telling me you're not going anywhere like that's a bad thing. And I was like, dang, okay. Because I was thinking, like, I want, I want my life to show progress, right? I want a narrative arc. I want to be the protagonist, right? And here I am living this, like, epistolary novel where it's just, like, one event after another. And I was like, Jesus, come on. Give me, like, a storyline here, right? And he was like, why is it not enough that you are at the foot of the cross and you're not going anywhere? Because, baby, they give people halos for less. And I think that it's so easy to get caught up in the idea that our life has to look like a movie. There has to be a theme. There has to be some driving charism, maybe. And maybe you want to be, like, the headliner saint, right? Like, I'm going to be honest, y'all. I don't want to be an ant companion, like, I want to be, I want to be Saint Meg Hunter Kilmer, and y'all can, like, come along with me, right? Um, although, to be in companions, you kind of got to get martyred, so hope you signed up for that. Uh, but I think we get this idea, I want my life to be big and flashy and incredible. And I look at who I am, and I look at the gifts I've got, and I just feel like I'm not going anywhere. But my friends, holiness is not mysticism. Holiness is not stigmata. Holiness is not levitation. I mean, like if the Lord's handing that out, then it'd be cool. But holiness is showing up. Holiness is showing up. And as Catholics, we like to check boxes, don't we? Right? Because we got a lot of boxes we could check. You can check your Divine Mercy Chaplet and your Rosary and your Holy Hour and your Father Mike Schmidt's podcast Bible in a year, right? You can check off your seat conference and you can check off your brown scapular and your green scapular and your angelic warfare confraternity. And y'all, like, there are so many things that we can check off and feel like, all right, I'm like really Catholic, right? And we can do so many things, and we can say so many prayers, and we can read so many books, and we can consecrate ourselves in 33 days to six ways to Sunday, right? We can have a consecration to Jesus and to Mary and to Joseph and the Sacred Heart, and who knows what book is coming out next they're going to hand out in, like, big old stacks of pamphlets. Like, I got nothing against those things except when we use them to keep God at arm's length. When devotions and books and pious practices are ways that we can fill our prayer lives with noise so we don't have to hear the Lord speak. I know this is not just me. This temptation we have to check off all the boxes, to call ourselves pious people while drowning out the voice of the God that we claim to worship. My favorite scriptural friend who had this issue. She's called St. Fotina. Anybody know St. Fotina? St. Fotina in John 4, the woman at the well. I tell you what, I love this woman so much, and I always sit down to pray about what I'm going to speak on, and I'm like, okay, not Fotina. And Jesus is like, really not Fotina? And I'm like, 
Okay, fine, a little bit Fotina. So Fotina, she's the woman at the well, right? She's a Samaritan woman. Y'all know the history of Jews and Samaritans. They loathe each other. I mean, Samaritans would like throw bones into the Jewish temple so as to defile it, right? Like these people are, and Jews did the same thing back at them. These people loathed each other. Jesus goes to Samaria on purpose to find this woman. And you know the story, right? He meets her at the well. And he starts off, he says, give me a drink. You ever notice he's rude? It's okay. Niceness is not a virtue. You ever notice Jesus being rude in your life? No? When you, like, pray really hard against one very specific thing that you feel sure could not happen, and Jesus is like, <laughs> watch this. Right? Sometimes, because he's trying to get your attention. Here, I think, he's trying to say to her, look at me. Look at me. Don't just sit here and let me be one more person who's using you. I want you to snap back at me. And she does, right? She says, I'm sorry. Who do you think you are? Asking me for a drink? You know we don't use anything in common. And Jesus says, if you knew the gift of God and who was saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. She says, (laughs) you don't even have a bucket. Where are you going to get living water from? I mean, this woman is not having it. And then Jesus says to her, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I shall give will never thirst. The water I shall give will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And my friends, we are used to Jesus talking weird, right? You ask him a normal question like, where's your bucket? And he starts talking about living water. That's not a normal thing for a regular person to say. And so if a regular person says that to you, you're not like, oh my gosh, living water. But that's what she says. See, this is not a passage that you can read. This is a passage you have to pray. And you have to imagine the look on Jesus' face when he spoke to her and the look of love in his eyes and the hope that he offered her. I will give you living water because something changes inside her. And she says, yeah, give me this water so I don't have to keep coming here to draw water. And Jesus pushes right into the broken parts of her. He says, go call your husband. She's like, and here it is. Here it is. We've all got that thing, right? The thing that we feel like if people knew they wouldn't want me. If this church knew, they didn't want me. The thing that you have to conceal or the thing that has to become your identity, the reason that you have to run from God because you feel like people can't handle my addiction. People can't handle my abortion. People can't handle my abuse. And you know what? People sometimes can't. And I am sorry if people in this church have looked at you with anything other than the love of Jesus when you shared your sexuality, when you shared your gender identity, when you shared your politics, when you shared your immigration status, when you shared your experience of racism, whatever it is that you have suffered at the hands of Christians, I am sorry because that is not Jesus. Look at what Jesus does. Jesus points out her suffering. She says, yeah, I don't have a husband. And he says, yeah, I know. You've had five husbands. The one you have now is not your husband. I know. 
He looks at her, he says, honey, I know who you are. And I still came looking for you. This is not an accident. I didn't just happen to be at a Samaritan well. Since before there was time, I have been longing for your heart. And I see your brokenness, and I see your suffering, and I see the reasons that you think nobody could possibly want you. And honey, I tell you, I came here for you. What does St. Fotina do? She changes the subject. (laughs) Y'all do this in prayer? When the Lord is like really speaking into your brokenness, really calling you to conviction, really trying to shed light on something that you've been trying to keep in the darkness, and you're like, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee, blessed are thou amongst women, and blessed the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Nothing wrong with the Hail Mary, unless you are throwing it at God to shut him up. I know this is not just me. We do the same thing in our communities. Things are getting too intimate. People want to know our hearts too deeply, but you know what will stop that. Let's debate the amount of lace there should be at the liturgy, huh? Yeah, we can talk about languages. We can talk about instruments that are appropriate. We can debate all kinds of things that may matter, but we use them as shields. That's what she does here. She says, I can see you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you people say that the place to worship is in Jerusalem. She changes the subject, but she doesn't leave. This is what makes Fotina a saint. She doesn't leave. She's a mess. She's utterly incompetent at this attempt at a conversation with God himself. But she doesn't leave. Holiness is not a function of theological acuity. Holiness is about showing up. And she's so transformed that at the end of the encounter, she goes back to the people who made her life hell. And she says, let me tell you about the Messiah. John 9, we've got a whole different story. This is the man born blind. The man born blind is a really interesting story because Jesus shows up at the beginning And first, he stops them from using this man to further their own perspective, right? Remember, it starts, they say, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? He's like, well, that's human being, first of all, not fodder for your arguments, right? So that's a good thing to remember when we, like, hear about people who were killed in tragic ways, that we're not going to use that to win an argument because that's a human being. Jesus, he redirects them, and then he goes, he heals this man. He heals him. In verse 7, and then disappears until verse 35. And those intervening verses, that's just the man born blind and people coming after him trying to destroy his faith. And you read that and you're like, Jesus, come on, man. Come back. Step in and say something. But you notice the man at the very beginning, when they say, When they ask what happened, how were your eyes open? He said, the man called Jesus, made clay, and anointed my eyes and told me, go and wash. So I went and washed and was able to see. They say, where is he? He says, I don't know. He got his vision back, and he's loving that. But he's not interested in Jesus. He had this mountaintop experience. He went on the conference. He went on the retreat. He's feeling it on that retreat. That was great. And then he's good. He doesn't need anything more. 
but he stays right there in that spot, right? They keep coming back to him. They keep asking. And this is fascinating because I don't know if you guys have had this experience where you have an encounter with Jesus and then nothing. And you keep, you show up to mass and nothing. You go to adoration and nothing. You try all the consecrations, nothing. And you're like, Lord, where are you? Why would you call me like this and then leave? But look what happens in Jesus' absence for this man. Because the first time they ask, he says, the man called Jesus. And the second time they come after him, trying to chip away at his faith, he says, he's a prophet. And the third time they call him in, he's, and he's a little salty, right? Anybody love this guy? He's like, oh, why are you asking? Do you want to be his disciples too? Like, obviously, no, they don't. He's just being obnoxious. Love it. The third time, he says he was from God. The absence of Jesus in combination with this honorary man builds a faith in him that he wasn't going to have if Jesus had stayed right there. The grace that he gets comes from showing up. And finally, Jesus returns. And he says, do you believe in the Son of Man? The man answers, who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? He's like, I mean, yes, but can I have a definition? The absence of Jesus is what gave him the faith because he kept showing up. And we see this again and again in all of our scriptures, that the people who draw near to Jesus are the ones whose hearts are changed. And you don't have to draw near well, right? We know the first time that we see St. Martha in Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 10, what does Martha say? Ugh, don't you even care? My sister has left me by myself to do the serving. Tell her to help me. Maybe it was, Jesus, I can't handle this. You know, maybe, maybe she's having a panic attack. Like, I don't know. Like, she's not necessarily petulant. But she walks up to Jesus, and her question is, don't you even care? If there could be a bad prayer, that would be a bad prayer. But there is no bad prayer when you are coming honestly broken to the Lord. You can pray for really bad things. We have, in the Bible, prayers for really bad things. In the Psalms, you read some of those Psalms. Pray in the office, and you're like, I don't know if I want to say this one out loud, Jesus. But they are good prayers because they are honest prayers. They're not immaculate prayers where we shine everything up and we act like we got everything together. It's, Lord, I'm not going anywhere. Lord, don't you even care? The disciples said the same thing. Word for word, they were being tossed about by the sea. Jesus was sleeping in the bottom of the boat. And again, we have been there. When life is chaos and drama and misery, and you kneel before the blessed sacrament, and you're like, don't you even care? And they could have jumped ship. They could have cut out. Been like, you know what? I'm not interested in a Messiah who takes naps. I am very interested in a Messiah who takes naps right? Because I'm supposed to imitate Jesus. I'm a nap. Don't you even care? 
But when they prayed that prayer, it was shaking him awake. It was running to Jesus. It was clinging to Jesus. It's not an immaculate heart handed over, but it's a heart handed over. Same thing happens with Martha. Jesus, afterwards, he says, oh, Martha, baby girl, deep breath, deep breath. You are anxious and worried about many things. There is need of only one thing. And we see Martha again in John's gospel. And Martha in John's gospel is not a woman who thinks God has abandoned her because her sister won't help with the dishes. Martha in John's gospel is a woman who has watched her brother die and turns to the one who could have saved him and says, I believe that you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. We think Peter's a big transformation. Martha, man. And it's because she drew near. It's because when she didn't have the words to say, she showed up anyway. It's because she was there in the mess and the awkwardness. Look at the difference between the call of Peter and the call of the rich young man. Jesus goes to Peter, big, brash, I know everything Peter, who doesn't get over that for like a lot more chapters. And he sends Peter out to go fishing. And Peter's like, all right, Lord, okay. I know from fish. Okay, carpenter boy, like really, but okay, at your command. And he has this miracle, and Peter says, go away. It's not a great prayer. Go away, Jesus. But what does he do? He runs to Jesus. He falls at his feet. Then he says, go away. But he's drawing near. And he's being real. He's giving him his heart. Depart from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. He says, God, I can't do this. And Jesus says, this I can work with. But look at the rich young man. The rich young man, he runs up to Jesus. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him. It's the only place in the whole gospel that we hear that Jesus loved an individual. The whole gospel of Mark is in Mark's account of the rich young man. And because he loved him, even though he knew that this man was not going to follow, he said, go sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and then come follow me. And the rich young man could have said, maybe not yet. Give me a minute. Let me put it in trust for a little while and hang out. But he didn't. He said, uh-uh. I have kept the commandments. What a thing to say to Jesus. I've never broken a commandment, right? I'm doing all the right things. I'm checking all the boxes. But I will not make the sacrifice that is required to draw near. I will not show up. Every person in scripture who we see utterly transformed by Jesus is because they showed up. Nicodemus, it took him a minute, but it worked because he kept drawing near to Jesus. So my friends, today we're the second day of Lent, right? So I kind of give the first few days like a little wiggle room on my Lenten penances. Like sometimes the Lord adds some 
like tomorrow, God might be like, no, this is another thing I want you to do, right? And like first few days. So I'm going to challenge you to maybe consider whether God might be asking you to show up in that awkwardness, in that silence, in that uncertainty, to bring him a heart that is real and raw and honest. Not to put noise in the way. Not to fill your prayer time with spiritual reading. That's a danger. You know, Faustina did that. St. Faustina was in the convent. Jesus started showing up. So she started reading books instead. She was like, well, God can't talk loud enough for me to hear him over my books. And you're like, like literal Jesus standing bodily in front of you. And you're like, this is awkward. I'm going to read a book instead. But I get it, Right? Because sometimes Jesus pushes just a little too close. Sometimes he wants to heal something that we are happy having scabbed over. Sometimes he wants to shed light where we want to live in darkness because it is too ugly to deal with the mess. And we can check a lot of boxes and throw a lot of noise at the Lord. And these are good things. I'm not saying give up the rosary. I pray a rosary every day. I'm not saying give up scripture. You may have noticed I'm a fan. I'm saying... If you are not making deliberate time to be in silence with the Lord every day, it is very easy for all of those pious practices just to be ways that you congratulate yourself while drowning out the voice of the Lord. Read your Bible and then sit in silence. Do your consecration prayer and then sit in silence. Pray your rosary and then sit in silence. But you have got to give God that space to speak in silence. Y'all have an adoration chapel here. So you can show up in there and look at him face to face. Or you can go in the big church, have a little bit more space, fewer people hearing you sob. Right, just me. Okay. And you can see Jesus in the tabernacle. Look, y'all, if you want, you can do this like 15 minutes walking across campus with like blinders on so you're not seeing people. I'm not telling you that you have to be on your knees in front of the Blessed Sacrament. I mean, it would be awesome. But My challenge to you is to give God space every day this Lent to speak in silence. And it will be awkward and it will be boring. I recommend pre-gaming with coffee. I tend to fall asleep and think I'm having visions, but it turns out they're dreams, right? So, like, you got to know yourself. you got to know the posture that's going to work for you, the time of day that's going to work for you, the caffeine level that's going to work for you. you got to know yourself. But, friends, if you make a commitment to daily time in silent prayer, I tell you what, I would guess 95% of the time it's going to be boring. It's going to be uncomfortable. It's going to be awkward, and it's going to seem like a waste. And God is going to work, and he is going to make you a saint. The way he did with Fotina when she changed the subject. The way he did with St. Peter when he fell down and said, go away. The way he did with the man born blind when all he had was his own animosity towards the people who were berating him. God will work in that silence. And there's such peace when you are a person who makes silent prayer a bedrock of your day. People ask me all the time, I live out of a car, how do you know where you're going next? I'm like, I don't know, I just get to a major interchange, I close my eyes and spin the wheel, see what happens. No. I spend serious time in silent prayer every day, and then I live my life. And I trust 
that God is either going to form my heart to desire what he desires, he's going to step in and stop me if I screw up, or he's going to fix it afterwards. I'm going to go to my judgment, and I really think God's going to be like, baby girl, you thought I wanted you to be a what now? People don't live out of their car. That's not a thing. But, man, you tried so hard. It was weird, but you tried so hard. There is such peace in giving God that time to speak in silence, because if he doesn't say anything, that's not on you. If he doesn't say anything, that's not on you. Your job is to show up. So make a resolution. Start with 15 minutes a day. 15 minutes is easy. Push it. 20 minutes, 25 minutes. Make a resolution. I'm going to give God time to speak this Lent. I'm going to draw near. I'm going to show up. I'm going to sit there and say, Lord, I'm not going anywhere. And if he doesn't say anything, I did my job. I showed up. Showing up, that's what makes saints.